So here we go. We're here to talk about shipping in the capital markets. My name is Dan Rogers. I'm a partner with Watson, Farley, and Williams here in New York. And we have a distinguished panel of uh, speakers today. Um, we have uh, Krista Volpicelli, of, uh, uh, who is a managing director with Citigroup's uh, Global Transport Group. We have Richard uh, Webo, who is with uh, a head of corporate finance at Fernley Securities. Um, we have in the corner there Chris Wires. We also he's with um, he's a head of uh, maritime investment Stiefel. We have Todd Wilson from Jefferies, and we have Eric Schles from uh, Wells Fargo, who's also an MD there. Um, you know the capital markets have been a very um, interesting place for shipping over the years, and the last two years it's been relatively quiet. So I think, you know, right now we want to uh, start with an obvious question. Let's talk about the U.S. capital markets and do we think they are open for shipping? Would anyone like to uh, take the helm on that one? Anyone want to go first? Richard, would you like to go with that one? I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, th shipping has been through a, a rough uh, period. We have seen um, rates at extremely low uh, levels. Um, and negative levels and, and share prices, as well as inventor sentiment, um, you know, not being there for basically the last three three years. Um, the IPO activity in the U.S., if we if we primarily focus on on that market, has been, you know, close to uh, close to zero, um, more or less. And, and existing names today are trading at or below. Uh, net asset values, existing names being, you know, first class, first class names with, with, um, you know, prime assets, uh, strong management, solid balance sheets, uh, good corporate governance structures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but right now, the sentiment is not that we're setting new records for, uh, you know, tech uh, sectors and other sectors every day. The only records we have been setting the last few years is record lows. Um, but I think. We are about, that is about to change. We are in a recovery phase in most shipping segments. Uh, banks are holding back, so there will be more activity in the capital markets. You know, I can come back to that a bit later uh, with more details. And I think we are seeing, seeing now the yards have finally start, started moving their prices upwards from you know, three, four years of, of downward pressure on prices. They have become more confident. And that will also uh, put pressure and, and focus upwards on asset values. Again, order books have come down dramatically. And I believe the market balance within all shipping sectors right now are entering a very interesting phase in terms of um, uh, rate improvements. And I think we're going to see a, um, a, um, a very interesting recovery in the, in the shipping market. Just as a, you know, put, to put a few words on, on the size of the market we are speaking here today, if you look at the total shipping market globally, you know, everything from Genko and DHT and Euronav in, in US to Maersk in Denmark, uh, Mitsui OSK in Japan, we have a global market cap today of $200 billion for the shipping industry. If we do the same for oil service, um, everything from Schlumberger, Transocean in, in U.S. to to uh, uh, Mitsui, oh, sorry, to Modek in, in Japan, um, and, and the Norwegian drilling names, etc. We have a 300 billion dollar market cap combined, 500 billion dollar market cap, which is equivalent to you know less than two percent of New York Stock Exchange and, and Nasdaq combined. So, 
uh, its overall microcaps we're talking about. But we're entering a, a very entering, uh, interesting uh, recovery phase right now. So I think time, times are changing, and we're going to see a lot more focus on uh, the maritime and energy space the next uh, couple of months and, and quarters. Thank you. Krista, what's the view from Citibank, one of the market leaders in this area? Where do you see this whole thing going right now in the U.S.? Um, sorry, let me just adjust this a little bit. Uh, I would say, so the markets overall are very strong in the U.S. The equity markets are strong, the debt markets are strong, the convertible markets are strong. Um, you know, as, as Richard has said, it's, it's a question of shipping and what the performance has been. I think you could make the argument that if you look all, across all sectors of the publicly traded shipping stocks, uh, the equities are all still at very low levels uh, versus where they were several years ago. Uh, and in most segments, we're at a state where the order book um, is in a much better place than it was um, in more recent times. And so that sets up an interesting dynamic in our view in terms of investors who want to be coming into the sector um, at potentially low entry point. Now for the companies who are already public, uh, if you look across the commodity sectors, tankers, dry bulk, LPG, uh, you have a market where the publicly traded shipping companies are trading at discounts to NAV of anywhere from 60% to 80%, depending on the sector. Um, so if you're in the markets as a shipping company, you're not wanting to be issuing equity to dilute your existing shareholders. So that's one of the key questions, right? It's a good time for investors to be coming in theoretically, but if you look at where the stocks are trading, it's not a great time to be issuing equity. And one of the challenges of the sector is just with the lower liquidity of all of these stocks, it's very hard for investors to establish a position. So in our view, the markets will be there, but it will be for companies who are offering investors the right liquidity in terms of investment, um, the right size, and the right value opportunity and how their story is differentiated. Well, Todd, let me ask you, do you agree with Krista's views? Yeah, I, I, I think she's spot on, right? I mean, the, the issue with, with shares and shipping right now is there's no liquidity, right? So even if investors have made that leap to say sh shipping stocks are undervalued compared to the rest of the market, um, can they get into a stock that they can get in and out of, right? Can they actually capitalize on, on a recovery? And will there be a buyer's market out there buying up the shares to, to, to recognize that undervalue? Um, and, and so I think that's, that's part of the problem. And then I think, you know, from a new issue perspective, um, you know, coming into that, you know, it's been almost three years now since there's been a, a shipping stock IPO in the U.S. And, and the, the question is, is what are you offering that they can't get in the market and that they can't get in the market at a discount? You know, there, I wish there was a big company that had, you know, multi-billion dollar asset value that was going to be a multi-billion dollar uh, market cap company IPO because I think that's what investors would would embrace, but you know, it's it doesn't exist. No, I understand. Um, you know, let me ask Eric. Um, do you think there is something that shipping companies might be able to offer that would make them attractive to investors, given the impediments that have just been recited? Well, I think that uh, I think that everybody has hit on the single problem, which is lack of investor interest, frankly, and. It's because of size, as Todd mentioned. It's because of liquidity. And it's really because of the difficulty in distinguishing what, what's being offered to them. And, uh, and so it, shipping is viewed as much less differentiated than other sectors. Uh, Ricard mentioned technology. That's one where you can easily differentiate. So that's 
perhaps a circuitous way of saying that what really needs to happen is somebody needs to have uh, to come to the market with something which is differentiated. It's not just another fleet of, you know, fill in the blank, that this, that, or the other. It, there has to be a different strategy. People have to feel as if the things that got them into trouble in, the, in this really bad downdraft that we've experienced are not going to recur and that there's going to be an ability to get out of the, get in and out of the stock in a meaningful way or it, it will come at a severe discount. Richard, you'd like to respond to that? Yeah, I, I, um, I think it's important when we have this challenge today, as, as uh, you've been, been mentioning, with shares trading at or below net asset value, and it's, it's hard to, to, to dilute shareholders uh, on that basis. Um, but I think it's important to create a uh, differentiated vehicle, you know, by being, you know, first, uh, different, unique in some way. We've seen some examples of it. You know, to create a, a uh, just another tanker company or, or Drabo company, the only variable you can compete on is price. Um, and with peers trading below net asset value, it's, it, that's, a, that's a hard game. But we've seen some examples, either differentiation in terms of uh, optionality, capital structure, size, um, sponsor commitment, etc. Uh, recently, we have seen in uh, Norway a, a few names being established, like uh, Avilco Drilling, which raised uh, capital, uh, marginal capital raise, uh, $65 million for the exposure of four times um, uh, midwater drilling units at $425 million. So you have the optionality and a strong uh, sponsor commitment. We've seen uh, Drybook 2020 raising uh, the first installments for uh, a series of up to eight uh, Newcastle Maxes. Um, and they you know, are differentiating themselves uh, through primarily optionality and capital structure and strong sponsor commitment um, to, to the other peers today, which are struggling so far at least with, with a relatively low pricing to, to asset you know, market values. Thank you. Um, Chris. Uh, let's, let's follow up on that a little bit and talk about other major markets for shipping, Oslo, London, and so forth. Do you think there are plays to be made there for shipping companies? I think what my view is I you know, generally agree with the other panelists. I think equity markets are really challenging. I don't think there's any better market than the U.S. to do a public, typical public equity offering. I know Norway is very competitive for 144A you know, raises, and you can get onto the main exchange, but all those companies eventually want to come into the U.S. market. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it'll change, though, as, as rates go up and, you know, the outlook of shipping gets, you know, gets more favorable. Um, you tend to see the equity markets try to think ahead. Um, so if, if the overall view of the market is, you know, values and rates are going to get a lot better, you're going you're to see the stocks start trading up on that news, and there probably will be windows of opportunity when these companies trade at valuations where it makes sense to, you know, sell equity. Um, I would say, though, the markets that, in my opinion, are pretty good for shipping companies today are, you know, the fixed income market and, and kind of the preferred market. I think, you know, both of those markets are very accessible at reasonable rates, um, you know, for, for quality issuers. The challenge is to use the capital markets for that product. You've got to be quite large. Um, you know, typically, I'd say, you know, 
two to three hundred million market cap minimum, ideally quite a bit larger, and you know, north of you know five hundred million of enterprise value. Well, let's uh, let's just touch on that. Um, do the panelists do you see a an event horizon, a point in the future when you might expect uh, NAV to be closer to uh, the value of those shares? Do we see a, a timeline? Christy, you would like to touch on that? Do you see a timeline that we might be looking at? Um, well, I, I think it depends by sector, so it's hard to let's, generalize. Let's do it by and, sector. And, but okay. but it's, it's, what I would say is, is, is we, have, we have tended to see in the markets, right, price to NAV is just a reflection of what the companies are ultimately earning in the underlying charter environment. NAV is a imperfect measure uh, because it's lagging. Uh, number one and number two, because everybody on the street has different views, and so you know, if 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 we go and attempt to calculate a consensus NAV number, inevitably I'll be in a client's office and they'll have a very different view of what their own NAV is, right? So, so it's an imperfect measure, number one. Um, but I think what we what you know, the question is just relative value, because as earnings recover in a sector, right, over the long term, that also means that asset values should be going up as well. Um, but if there's going to be, you know, some kind of disconnect in terms of the timing of that, you know, sure, in the dry bulk sector, as earnings keep going up over the course of this year, um, will we see potential for that gap to close? You know, potentially. I do think one of the hindrances to that, to that gap is, you know, back to the question of company size. Uh, but what we have seen is the companies which are larger and more liquid and have an, a capital structure that is appropriate. Um, there I see most room um, to, to break through that kind of premium to NAV level. Eric, what's, what's yeah, your I, view? Well, I'd say that I agree with uh, NAV. It's just a, a very difficult, uh, it's a moving target. It's, you know, it, it, it's beauty is in the eye of the beholder, if you will. I think that as sectors recover more broadly, as, as you see, uh, and it, it takes time because it, all this stuff that we've talked about, about the difficulty of getting investors into a sector. But assuming that that all takes place, you will see a migration from people thinking about NAV purely to an EBITDA valuation. And as, as, to the extent you can get into that discussion, it becomes a healthier discussion, it becomes a more constructive discuss discussion. And, you know, I think that the, the NAV issue, the NAV conundrum, is one where uh, ship owners, uh, company CEOs, need to believe in the future. And there may be times when they don't particularly like their stock price, but the opportunity, the sectoral opportunity is so great that you, you take one step back to take two steps forward. And so I think that I think the NAV is just a difficult uh, metric, and hopefully the dialogue can get beyond that and be more forward-looking in terms of opportunity. I see some heads nodding in agreement. Todd, you were one of them. I know Richard was one. Todd, why don't you start and give us your views, then we'll come to Richard. I, I think the key to what Eric was saying is that eventually you have to get investors focused on growth and earnings growth, because that's why they pick stocks, right? They don't pick stocks based on the asset value today, hopefully they pick stocks on, on the earnings potential, right? And the, and the growth potential of those stocks. And so why are some of these stocks, you know, serially undervalued or, or valued at less than NAV, even if it's not a perfect um, measurement, right? There are other issues. There's 
you know, belief that the, the cycle has shortened, right? So even if dry bulk fundamentals look really good, new orders could come in and, and erase that in 18 months, right? Um, two, management and government governance, right? So there are, you know, opaque governance structures in some of the public companies, and there's leakage in some of the public companies. And so in, investors don't care enough to invest in something that has some hair around it. Third is balance sheet, right? Krista mentioned it's got to have an appropriate capital structure, right? I think what investors really want to see is a large company that has an appropriate capital structure that's paying down its, its debt, that's amortizing its debt regularly, that doesn't have any exploding maturities on the balance sheet or exploding amortization. Um, and so, again, I think what it comes down to is how do you get investors less focused on net asset value um, and a discount to net asset value in, in a more focus on forward earnings, and that's creating an entity that actually has some visibility into earnings growth. Um, and so it, it, it's a tricky play. If you're going to play spot market assets, um, you're, you're destined to be tied to the market. But can you structure an entity with the right governance, the right balance sheet, you know, the right ability to raise capital that, you know, and, and not have unnatural holders that are looking to sell down? that eventually you create an entity, hopefully that you can issue equity at, at, at times, maybe not have to take a step back, but issue equity at or around asset value to, to continue the growth model. Okay, Richard, what's your view? Well, I, you know, many of the points were, were covered here, but I, I think uh, a net asset value approach is a, is a perfect way to, to miss uh, investment opportunities. Uh, I think you in a, downward market, if you buy at net asset value, first of all, your, your, your ships are depreciating by a, a certain percentage each year, and you have a negative uh, cash flow, so you lose you know, 10, 20 percent uh, a year. Uh, I, I think you know, looking at the next phase when, when things are recovering here, um, I think it's all, it's all about, uh, about earnings. Uh, so far, we have seen a lot of activity of um, Investors high, highly familiar with, with shipping, um, family offices, high net worth, uh, hedge funds, etc. We've seen recently long funds been more active, uh, but the generalists have not touched uh, shipping yet, and they will start, they will start moving when we uh, when we are looking uh, on, on when earnings are recovering. If we look at most of the shipping names uh, at today's prices, a five-year-old Cape, VL, VLGC, uh, Fidemax, um, and, and, and plug in the 20-year 20, 20 average rates, we are seeing cash-on-cash uh, cash returns of you know, somewhere between uh, 17 to 30 percent. Uh, and I, I, in fairness, we have $27,000, $28,000 a day on a Cape for 219, where you have a cash-on-cash cash return of um, you know, 23, 24% of a five-year-old ship. You know, it's uh, impossible not to, um, to invest in these sectors when, when you see that kind of uh, returns. In a good market, the shipping market is uh, pouring cash. So, you know, I think earnings will be the driving factor. Okay. Um, let's talk about some of the rise of the stock market. I mean, over the last eight years, the, you know, the stock market has consistently risen. There was a 242% increase in the stock market during the Obama years, and recently, I believe, is another percentage increase uh, since Mr. Trump took over. Has that had any effect on the views of people looking into the shipping markets? Because it doesn't seem like the stock prices 
in that area are rising, um, whereas they have in other areas, perhaps for no reason whatsoever. But let's talk about it in shipping. Should there be some sort of echo effect into the shipping markets? Uh, I'm happy to start with that. Um, I guess what I would say is, <laughs> just looking at the price performance of the, the listed companies, I would say no, the general backdrop has not had a, an impact on the shipping sector. It's been isolated to the dynamics of each sector. Um, but that said, I think there's um, an interesting dynamic to think about, which is, you know, the markets have been growing very strong. There were previous presentations that talked about some of the underpinnings of that in terms of corporate earnings growth has really been driving the markets upward. And you hear people start to talk about, is the market as a whole overvalued, right? The PE multiple of the S&P is, is at higher levels than, than normal. Um, so, you know, I think that the general outlook is still strong for the overall markets driven by earnings. But as that eventually softens, which it eventually will, um, it should be a good time for investors to be putting dollars into more cyclical sectors where they can earn outsized returns. And so that could provide an interesting opportunity to take a look at at shipping in that context. Again, it's all gonna come down to the individual dynamics, but I think that um, my view is to your first question, I don't think shipping has been carried up by it, uh, but I think that it could perhaps present an interesting opportunity as, as we look forward. Eric, what's your view on that? I think that if we look back to when shipping stocks were really strong, I think that in many respects, they were a derivative of China's growth, and the strength of the energy markets. And I think that we have the potential, assuming we don't have things like trade wars and so on, to re-enter a time when there will be more optimism around those fundamental markets. And, and what we saw, for example, with tanker stocks was that there were a lot of energy investors who felt as if the pure play into energy was overvalued and that and that tankers were a good derivative way to do that. Now, they may not have understood the whole dynamic of vessel supply and demand as well as they might have, but that was the fundamental thesis. I think as people, as a general optimism returns that uh, around economic growth globally, that's what drives shipping. And I think that that is going to be the sort of thing that, you know, I, I don't think that the appreciation of the overall market plays into it at all. I think it's really a, a desire to, to be at a nexus where there's going to be growth. Okay. Well, um, Todd, uh, uh, do you have a view on this? And let's, let's talk about something a little bit different that you touched on there, Eric, tariffs and trade wars. I mean, do you see that as having a depressive effect, particularly, per, for example, in the dry bulk sector? Well, I, look, I... I, I Trade wars are certainly not going to help the shipping industry, right? I, I think everybody in the shipping space wants open, global, free trade. Um, the question is, is how, I, and I'm not a political expert, so I don't know exactly how deep um, some of these, you know, headlines anyway are going to actually go on a, on a practical scale. Um, but, but I think right now the sentiment is that, you know, for the most part, the global economy is growing and growing strong, right? So you have stronger growth in Europe, you have, you know, continued strong growth in Asia, the U.S. continues to grow. Um, so I, I, I don't think that has created an overhang on stocks as of yet. Um, and, and I think really what's buttressing some of the, you know, the undervalue um, 
potential here is that the, the global economy is very strong right now. And so the supply-demand dynamics right now in shipping in almost every sector look, look good to, to really good. And so does that translate into stock price performance? I hope so. Um, but, but I don't, you know, I don't think that the, the negative or the discount to NAV is in any way um, based on, you know, some of the headlines around trade wars yet anyway. Good. Let's switch topics a little bit, and I'm going to start with you, Chris, way down there at the end. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, some consolidations. Um, obviously, Euronav, Generate, and one or two others that have been burbling out there. What effect, if any, do you see that ha having on the potential for a capital markets play? So I think, I think you know, we, we've obviously seen an uptick in M&A activity. If, if you look at the Generate Euronav transaction, I think it's a particularly interesting example because after that deal was announced, Generate shares traded up roughly 35%. And um, Euronav shares actually traded up as well, 8%. So, you know, it was kind of a win-win for both companies as far as um, shareholders were concerned. You don't normally see the acquirer shares trade up, you know, with the um, acquiree. Um, but there's definitely a, you know, I think a desire amongst all the investors in, in the, you know, shipping space to see more consolidation. Um, but I think most of the consolidation we're likely to see, at least for a while, is going to be kind of mergers like the Euronav Generate deal, where it's stock for stock. Um, because, you know, a lot of the buyers, you know, aren't in a position to, you know, pay a lot of cash for, um, for substantial acquisition candidates. I'm sure they'll spend cash to do individual, you know, vessel acquisitions. Uh, but I, I think today, until you see companies begin to trade, you know, closer and hopefully above their net asset values, you're, you're not going to see very many raising equity for the purpose of, um, of making acquisitions. And I, I think a lot of the sellers, you know, the companies, like the likely, you know, most likely candidates to, to merge are the, um, are the sponsor-backed companies, and most of these sponsors, you know, invested, you know, when prices and values were higher than they are today. So most of these sponsors actually don't want to sell for cash. They, they'd rather sell for shares and get a liquid currency of something they think will trade up and, you know, hopefully give them a better exit in, in, in the future. So I guess I'm a big believer in M&A, but I, I don't think it's going to drive a lot of... Um, capital raising, or at least not as much as you would normally expect it to. Thank you. I would, I would, I would think that you're right about the sponsor-backed um, vehicles being the targets for these things, because I think everyone knows that one of the exit strategies was, of course, to take those companies public, but if you can't mm -hmm. go directly, then maybe a stock-for-stock -stock play is the, uh, the way to turn that around. Krista, would you agree with what uh, Chris proposed? Um, yes. I, I, I think that as a general statement, our view is that we will see more consolidation, um, both due to the sponsor-backed platforms that Chris mentioned, but also I think just regular old-fashioned M&A. We all know what the challenges are in shipping um, in terms of ownership structures, et cetera. But, uh, but our view is that investors are seeking to back companies who are going to find growth through consolidation. And it goes back to the points of equity investors are looking for growth, and you can achieve that growth organically through the charter market. You can achieve it through M&A if, if you have a transaction that works. Um, you, know, you can consolidate commercially um, in this market as well without M&A, 
and we've seen that successfully in the tanker sector. But it's interesting that Euronav, uh, which is a company that had done that commercial consolidation through its pooling structure, has also taken this step in terms of actually acquiring another company, and it's a transaction which we think you know, makes a lot of sense for all the shareholders. So our view is, yes, it will continue. Um, maybe it doesn't drive cash being raised to do the deals today, but I think what it will do is it will set companies up for a healthier uh, way to be issuing capital in the future for their growth needs, whether that's organic or otherwise. Richard, do you have something to add on that? Uh, I, I think uh, a differentiating factor is size. Uh, consolidation will be driven by size. We've, we did a research on, on that through the, the history uh, on various segments, and, and it's um, a company that has a, has a unique position in, in, in one segment, uh, either through size or, or through other attributes, typically achieve a, a premium to, to others uh, of 10 to 20 uh, percent uh, on, the, on the equity. Uh, where we see you know, some sectors which has three or four companies in a leading position, there is no real premium to any of the companies because the larger or the faster or best company will be, be affected by the, the laggard in the group. Um, but I, I think consolidation will be, be um, uh, a hot topic going forward. And I think the key driver will be size. And through size, you have the liquidity and uh, eventually capital of cost, uh, cap, cost of capital. Um, you know, so with real, you know, lower, cast, cap, lower cost of capital than any of the peers uh, will enable you to do transactions uh, nobody else. Um, can, can do. Um, so size is, is the key driver, I think, here. Eric, what's the view at Wells Fargo? Well, I think, I think what's been said is insightful and accurate. I think that, that the general view is that when you think about shipping M&A, to me, there are very large, well-capitalized private companies that take a very different view from those that are uh, public, uh, private equity backed. I think it's, it's a bit of a tale of two cities there. And I think that there is going to be, among the, the public and private equity backed companies, I think that there will be uh, consolidation. I think the large, well-funded uh, private companies are going to take a much more circumspect approach. Eric, how about you? What's, what's Jeffrey's position on this? Uh, Todd, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, look, I think. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, cons look, consolidation in in shipping, right? It doesn't it doesn't equal market, you know, dominating leader, right? That controls pricing or anything like that. So so what is it for? What does it get you? Um, synergies aren't massive, but there are some synergies. Um, the, question, the question is, do they, do they overcome the dis-synergies from some of the social issues um, that you have to deal with? Um, but, but look, ultimately it helps with size, it helps with scale, and it helps with you know, private equity. At, at some point they have to exit, right? Um, and so the, the, you know, it's almost like IPO by merger, but um, they're going to they're gonna have to look at it at some point, right? And if if we continue to say that you know the the comps out there are trading at discounts to NAV, 
if you want to take your company public, it's going to be at a discount to those comps unless you offer something differentiating, um, then, then merger has to be an option. The problem is, is merger with a public company also creates now a public stock that you have to benchmark to, right? So, so in most cases, these stocks are trading below NAV. You're going to be actually marking down your asset on a daily basis when you have a public floating stock. So there, there's hurdles to consolidation, but as everyone has already said, it makes sense for the private equity-backed um, assets that don't have a viable IPO option, are too big to just sell the fleet. Um, and, and so I think you will see more of it. Great. We've talked a lot about equity. Let's talk a little bit about debt. Um, obviously, there's been a fair amount of debt has been issued in uh, Oslo, for example. And uh, what role should debt be playing in the capital markets these days? Richard, why don't you start since you're the Norwegian representative on our panel today? I, I, I uh, you know, j just a backup. We have a, a uh, trading fleet today of around 90,000 uh, ships and a you know, total world fleet, uh, which is worth around thousand billion uh, dollars. If you assume the average age, you know, seven years and uh, average duration on the debt is, you know, remaining five years and 50% loan to value, you have around hundred billion dollars which will need to be refinanced every year. We have an order book of, of clo close to 300 billion dollars. Uh, assuming one third is paid in there, you have another 200 billion dollars um, which will need to be get financing. Um, the next, you know, say two, two and a half years. Uh, so the next 24 months, we will need to re refinance $200 billion and get new fun financing on $200 billion, or so 400 in total. Uh, we've heard through the um, panels earlier, earlier today that uh, banks are, are uh, lowering their exposure in, in shipping, and I think in that sense, the capital market uh, throughout the you know, capital structure will, will take a much more active role. Uh, the equity is one side of it, the credit uh, market is, is another. So both um, unsecured uh, and especially secured debt, we've seen a lot of focus on the last 12 months. We've seen several issues in, uh, in uh, Norway, um, which offers a um, uh, swift and, and uh, simple uh, process um, and uh, attracts an international investor, uh, you know, investor base. Uh, a few examples with um, Eagle Bulk, Songa Bulk, uh, we've seen Boralis and, uh, and a few others. And I think uh, the bond market will be very active the next uh, two years and I think we're going to see new products both mezzanine hybrid products, uh, convertibles will be active, and uh, not at least, uh, say, leaseback structures, which we saw on the previous um, panel. That is capital sources, which we will see a lot of activity with the next, you know, 24 months, I think. Great. Chris, let me ask you this. Can uh, these type of debt instruments compete effectively against the traditional sources, such as bank debt? And that's, that's, you know, I think the biggest point around the capital markets for, um, for, for debt is, you know, your competition is banks and Chinese leasing companies in, in a lot of cases. Um, and no, you can't really compete against those sources. Those sources are going to be cheaper um, from a cost of capital perspective what you can do in the capital markets. But there's lots of situations where, you know, the banks or the leasing companies aren't the best options. Um, 
you know, we always point to companies with kind of slightly older ships, you know, you know, fleets of, you know, say five to 10 years of age on average, if banks need to be fully amortized by 15 years of age, it's, you know, not a good source of capital for them is their break-even rates, you know, become, you know, too high and the capital markets can bring it down. And then the other area where it makes sense, which, you know, I'd say most shipping companies don't have access to this, but, you know, the better capitalized ones do is where you do, a, you know, bank debt, you know, on a secured basis, and then you do unsecured bonds in addition to that. And those unsecured bonds can be a very competitive source of capital um, for the right companies. Uh, but you've got to be, you know, fairly large, and investors have to be confident, you know, even in a downturn, you know, there's going to be enough value left in, in the fleet to repay the, um, the unsecured debt, which is not particularly easy to do if you've got a lot of senior secured debt in your capital structure. I'm going to get it right this time. Todd, what's your view on that? Well, it's just on, on the last point, right, unsecured debt, you know, can make sense as a, it's more of an alternative to equity, right? So if issuing equity is incredibly expensive because you trade below asset value, um, again, I think you have to have the right <coughs> size equity behind you, behind you as the debt investor comes in, that's all they're going to be looking for is how much equity is behind me and how, how do I get out in a bad situation, right? So, um, Look, I think the, the capital markets are open for debt. You know, I think shipping carries less of a stigma than in the equity markets, in the debt markets, but it's still gonna be, you know, highly structured. It's gonna be, you know, in the US anyway, typically a rated structure, which could have some implications with companies' banks, right? So there, it's not perfect for every company, but it's something that, you know, large enough companies can have in their tool belt so they can have Norway, they can have, you know, Chinese leasing, they can have the banks and the U.S. capital markets, and they can, you know, hopefully mix and match all of those options together to create the right capital structure for their company. Great. We only have about 40 seconds left, so I thought I would just see if the audience had any questions. We have one up here. Well, just wait for the microphone. It'll come to you in one second. Right here. Yeah, I heard a lot of conversation about liquidity. How do you feel about uh, consolidation across sectors to create market liquidity? In other words, uh, you know, where we have you know, dry bulk and other sectors coming together uh, to, with the result being size, but not necessarily market clout in a sector. Anyone? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, uh, that's a good question. I think it's a, it's a balancing act, right? Because there is this view that people like a pure play uh, what we've seen is that people really like liquid stocks. And I think if, uh, if there's some, some experience behind it, I think if there's, there's a logic to it, I think that, I think that uh, the liquidity of the stock will trump that concern about a mixed fleet. Any other questions? And I think we are done. Thank you very much, panel. <laughs>